So uh, welcome to this first Syncross Special Ethics Seminar of the term. Um, today we've got Maureen Kelly, who's Professor of Bioethics and Welcome Senior Investigator at the Ethox Centre and the Welcome Centre for Ethics and Humanities here at Oxford. Uh, before she gets started, just a quick note on the format for those that might be unfamiliar. So Maureen's going to speak for roughly half, a little bit longer, then we'll have our discussion. Um, if, when you ask a question, uh, if you can either raise your hand, uh, and my preference is slightly that you raise your hand and then you can come in and ask your question and keep it a little bit more like a discussion, but you're also welcome to use the, the chat or the Q&A function. I think they're, they're operating, yeah, so if you want to do that, you can also do that and I will uh, endeavour to, to read out your questions. Okay, well today Maureen's going to talk to us about fighting diseases of poverty through research, deadly dilemmas, moral distress and misplaced responsibilities. Take it away Maureen. Thanks so much and thanks everyone for joining. I'm really sorry we can't uh, be together in person, uh, hopefully soon. Um, but I really appreciate the invitation to speak during this series and I look forward to having some discussion about some of the questions that I'll raise. So um, this, th this talk is sparked by um, a project that just finished up. It was a five year uh, empirical research ethics project across four countries, um, three international research sites. And so it's split into two. Um, what I'm doing is I'm, I'll, I'll give you enough of the, um, enough highlights and some substantive content from the empirical findings of this research ethics project. And I'll say more about the methods and the, and the project in a moment. Um, so we'll spend roughly half the time giving you enough um, from the participants in this study to give you a sense of the ethical challenges in context. And then in part two, uh, the second half, um, hopefully leading to a kind of continuation and discussion. I'll share some normative reflections, stepping back from what we found empirically, um, some of the dilemmas facing in particular frontline researchers and reflect on how the kinds of questions this raises for how we think about ethical obligations in international research. Um, so it has these two parts and roughly equal time to both. Um, I do have a lot of content because I know this is a mixed audience. Some of it I'll go through more quickly and I'm hoping in the recording people can pause and spend more time and linger on certain parts. Um, so there's more here than, than we'll be able to cover. Um, but again, I'm hoping that we can draw out um, anything that's of interest and take a deeper dive during discussion on those points. So before I, I get started, um, critically, I'm here on behalf of a, of a large and really talented research team. So in the first half, I'm sharing the findings. Um, this is our, our REACH team um, from the study that I'll be referring to, and they have all contributed fundamentally to, to this project. So where I share quotes and data across the different sites, I'm also including the papers uh, that have now come out where you can go and um, find out more, read and understand the data in, in full context for each of the countries. So again, I'll be, this is sort of a higher level view of the data across very diverse contexts. And I wanna encourage you to go to the website, which is included here. And that has all of our papers, many of which are still forthcoming. And it has a number of films um, that we've created uh, as a, a way of understanding uh, the research ethics context um, through the eyes of frontline researchers and through the eyes of participants and community members. Um, so there's a lot there that I won't get to, but I very much wanted to acknowledge everybody else on the team. Um, so to start just by way of, of background, it's, it's not a surprise, and I think um, most of the people joining will appreciate that most of global health research occurs against the backdrop of really severe intersectional and structural vulnerabilities um, where the susceptibility of people's of population susceptibility to disease and early death are driven by poverty and related structural factors such as political conflict and climate change, things that are sort of outside the power of individuals to, um, to affect change or to shift and yet 
um, many of the so-called diseases of poverty come from and stem from these underlying social, political, environmental conditions. Um, much of global health research priority setting continues to be driven by um, the really comprehensive and valuable global burden of disease. And this is the, these are the 2019 numbers, the most recent numbers and the aggregate um, disease burden in one shot. So this is quite, you know, a powerful set of data. Um, there have been lots of critiques and, um, on the, the way in which the processes behind priority setting, I'm not going to, to get into that. This is just to um, provide a bit of background to show really how priority setting is largely driven. Um, and to point out that, again, what's probably obvious, but it often not stated, which is that if you look at this aggregate map, and if you look at any of the specific disease uh, burdens by a map, the same areas in red light up over and over again. So the dominant burden of disease is shouldered by those who often live in poverty and conflict zones in health systems that are really struggling. Um, and the fact that the maps all look this way is really significant, I think, from the point of view of ethics and, and social justice and thinking about where, you know, if you're tracking most the most significant suffering in the world, you're also tracking these more sort of structural or at least uh, operating the presence of these really structural difficult um, drivers of disease. Uh, and I, I also want to point out that um, I very much appreciate, and, and this project and this work is driven by an appreciation of the need for research to inform evidence-based interventions, both in humanitarian work um, and development work uh, through partnerships with governments. And this is just one example of uh, a nutrition program in Bangladesh that was implemented, a uh, very expensive one, and was proved to be ineffective. It wasn't harmful that children weren't worse off than they were uh, before, but they weren't any better off. And so there are a lot of programs like this, not to, not to pick on, on UNICEF, but this is, there are a lot of other examples where um, the urgent need to intervene and to, to implement a program, which takes, is, is very costly in, in terms of implementation and staff and training. Um, it's very hard to shift once you've implemented a program like this. And yet a lot of them are remarkably not evidence-based. Um, and it may seem astonishing, but sometimes the need to move quickly um, obviates, you know, makes it difficult to, to gather sufficient data. And so there's an increasing move and argument that we need to take the time to ensure that large-scale development programs, large-scale humanitarian programs are better integrated with research. And so you'll see groups like MSF um, integrating research within their humanitarian aid efforts so that there's more communication between data and the ground, what's needed and what works in context. Um, so this is a really critical role. Uh, there is a really critical role for research in these settings. Um, that's sort of a starting point. Um, and I'm not challenging that premise, but I'm gonna raise some ethical questions and some limitations of the way in which we currently um, do this in, in these settings. Um, so the fundamental issue is that global health research is occurring in, in context of structural injustice. And this is, there are a number of definitions out there. This is from the, um, Madison Powers and Ruth Faden's recent book on structural injustice. So structural injustices take the form of unfair patterns of advantage and unfair relations of power, including subordination, exploitation, and social exclusion, as well as powers and fate and argue, human, human rights violations and deprivations in well-being that contribute to and grow out of unjust social structural conditions. So once we recognize that fact, um, what I'd like to explore today and argue is that there's a, a real disconnect between this reality, uh, which people do recognize, and the moral world of frontline researchers and the kind of day-to-day -day practice of research and how dilemmas of um, life in poverty or in political conflict in these other contexts manifest um, people's felt obligations, et cetera. There is a real disconnect here. 
Um, the other really important thing is uh, to underscore the way in which priority setting still continues to happen. So I mentioned the global burden of disease and a number of scholars, including um, uh, Debbie Sridhar in Edinburgh, have argued and described really mapped the way in which um, global health priority setting happens um, and have um, described the sort of small number of very influential, um, high profile uh, government agencies or government research institutions, uh, organizations, and um, public-private partnerships that are funding the majority of global health research in the world. And it's a very small number and they um, uh, are primarily located in high-income countries. Although uh, importantly, um, there's an, uh, has been a rise in the last decade of of um, very effective community-based um, country, uh, low-income country-driven uh, partnerships. Nonetheless, um, they argue that the majority of um, funding and sort of priority setting is coming from this very small group of powerful institutions. Um, and they raise a number of questions about this. So um, what I want to point out, I'm not gonna get into that debate today um, from Debbie, uh, and Chelsea Clinton, but just to highlight that um, one of the things missing is that despite these public-private partnerships, there really is very little attention to um, including in priority setting for research, these more sort of structural drivers of disease. So whilst um, diseases of poverty are being tackled and being tackled very systematically, there's much less attention on um, research engaging these more sort of structural factors. So to, to shift to sharing new data from our project, we set out to investigate the ethical challenges surrounding everyday research. So this is sort of after ethics approval happens, a study has been approved. Um, what happens in the field? What happens uh, during a clinical trial or a social science study over time in low resource settings or um, low resource and uh, politically unstable settings. Uh, in, the study, in this study, we focused on um, maternal child health just as a way of narrowing our, our focus and because um, that was the nature of expertise on the core team. And it was a large uh, partnership across institutions in many of the programs um, in partnership with Oxford's international uh, research programs. And it, it wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have um, really deep and lasting partnerships with the clinical scientists and leads on these studies that opened up their studies to ethical scrutiny on a day-to-day -day basis over um, up to four years. Um, so really remarkable. Um, and they played a, um, a really important role in reflecting on thinking about some of the dilemmas that were coming up in their own studies. Um, very quickly, the institutions were um, Kemri Wellcome Trust, uh, which has uh, been operating since 1989. Um, again, a very uh, poor district of Kenya on the, on, on the um, eastern coast of Kenya. Um, there for a reason, um, right in the midst of really um, serious disease burden um, and severe poverty. Um, the second um, partnership was with ARI, the Africa Health Research Institute, which is in a similarly rural location in KwaZulu-Natal, similar socioeconomic political context um, and really high uh, disease burden, especially HIV. And the third partner was the Shoko Malaria Research uh, Unit, which is right on the border of Myanmar and uh, Thailand. And they have a large number of um, actually the majority of the population in their malaria, TB, and other research um, uh, studies are Karen Burmese migrants. And obviously now with the situation in Myanmar, they're, they're seeing an influx of, of people fleeing um, the border, fleeing Myanmar to come into Thailand, exacerbated by the border being shut down with, with COVID. Um, so we chose this unit in part because of the really trying to understand more of the political context uh, where the nature of vulnerability was not just poverty, but also political persecution, lack of recognition by government. 
Um, so those were the three sites. And what we did was there, there were a range of different research programs at each of these sites that we partnered with. And by we, um, the team that I just uh, flashed up, uh, there were local um, ethicists and social scientists that were embedded in these studies for up to four years. Um, the shortest was two years. The longest uh, is still ongoing. And some of these were clinical um, uh, randomized controlled trials. Some of them were social science studies. Some of them were psychological development studies. So we, we deliberately picked a range of different types of research. So it wasn't just uh, clinical research. And um, the teams were embedded uh, in the sort of day-to-day -day work of these research studies, uh, but we deliberately uh, conducted interviews with, we took a kind of 360 degree view of, of research and talked to participants, their family members, members of the community and households of those who were involved in research, the researchers themselves. And these weren't just interviews, we used diaries and other ways of engaging them over time. Um, so this is a collective snapshot of the data that came in from the three studies, the qualitative data um, that I'll be drawing on and some of the um, quotes that I share with you. We also conducted participatory visual work as a, another way of understanding the experiences of community members. And I encourage you to go look at the website. We've got uh, two videos posted and another forthcoming. And they're really powerful. I can't convey in these quotes that I'll be sharing with you, the kind of direct voices of community members and researchers. Um, so please do have a, have a look at that. So the results I want to share today um, really barely scratch the surface, to be honest. It's just a massive amount of, of data and really interesting a number of ethical themes. And I'm going to hone in on one theme for the purposes of this talk. And that's to look at the um, the experience of the frontline researchers and their own sense of felt obligation toward participants and their, and their families in the research context. And I'm going to underscore um, their experiences as they related to these deeper structural vulnerabilities or drivers of disease, as I mentioned. Uh, and one of the things that was so powerful in this work was to get to know the frontline researchers and to appreciate that they're really the face and heart of global health research. Um, those who get the accolades are the PIs and the, you know, the, the sort of um, high visibility researchers. And there's this quiet army of um, largely local staff. Um, they are often on precarious contracts. They go from one study to another. The recent experience with UKRI demonstrates how devastating it can be when funding is pulled by one of those um, handful of, of uh, global health investors. And um, they're just remarkable in what they know, what they do, their skills. Um, and so um, really the most powerful thing that, that we came to, to learn about is their, their experience. And they're the ones that are bearing witness to the kinds of struggles that participants face outside the study. And we explicitly wanted to know about the background and, and people's daily lives. And we learned about it directly from participants and uh, community members, but also from the, from the researchers themselves. And part of this was to open up the way that we tend to think about our obligations in research. You know, historically research ethics has really focused on a fairly narrow conception of what we owe to others in, in research. And we deliberately wanted to widen that view um, through the eyes of those that are, are working directly with participants and understand um, the wider struggles that, that people are facing and in a way to challenge this narrow conception of responsibility in research. And one of the things we realized is that a lot of frontline researchers um, don't necessarily have the tools or the resources to respond, but they do have the sort of moral capacity to respond. They feel very strongly that they need to respond. So I'm gonna say um, much more about that. So what they're witnessing, and this is, this is from uh, Mesot, um, from our, uh, one of our team members and really talented photographer, Supak Nostan. And here she's, she's taking a picture while she actually was out um, working on a surveillance, a TV uh, surveillance project. And um, 
day day to day in their in their own work they're they're seeing the burdens in this case quite literally <clears throat> carried by members of the community and people that are also involved in research studies in this case uh, one of the malaria studies and so um, this is from the the Thai team uh, but this model of vulnerability uh, um, was shared across the different sites and that is that the um, what people were facing in their daily lives was brought into the research encounter, um, not surprisingly, and yet research ethics really doesn't quite recognize this model of, of, um, of structural sources of vulnerability in research. So what we found was this intersectional relationship between political vulnerabilities, economic vulnerabilities, social vulnerabilities, such as gender-based violence, and then health vulnerabilities. And the research is focused on the latter, right? The research is focused on health vulnerabilities. And there's an awareness that all the rest of this is driving malaria, TB, HIV. But there is the sense of, well, you know, that's not what we're here to do. Um, and a kind of frustration that that's not what we're here to do. Uh, the other um, really important feature of the vulnerabilities witnessed by and experienced by um, participants and frontline researchers was what Florencia Luna, uh, the Argentinian bioethicist has called vulnerability cascades. Uh, this was especially true in the Kenyan um, um, findings where you saw the ways in which families were existing sort of on the precipice and you had these, these cascade effects where um, one lost job in the family or one illness would tip the scales and reinforce the vulnerability of the entire family. And um, you also saw this on an institutional level or, or structural level in the health system. So while we were conducting the study in Kenya, there was a nursing strike. And this one strike, um, which is, you know, a frequent occurrence in, in many of the countries where global health research occurs, that one strike was really devastating and paralyzing for the entire health system. And so in the context of research, you're sort of witnessing at these different levels, um, these tipping points and cascade effects where you have uh, reinforcing harms, um, structural in, in nature. So I wanna shift now to um, what the impact of, of witnessing these kinds of structural vulnerabilities and the vulnerability cascades and how this manifested for researchers. Uh, as I mentioned, they're on the front lines of systemic suffering. What they witness on a day-to-day -day basis um, is, is really remarkable and, and they often struggle with the disconnect between the narrowness or their perceived narrowness of, of the study that they're there to collect data for and, and the enormity of um, the needs of the communities and the participants and the families in which they're, they become very close to. Um, so they often witness really heart-rending dilemmas, not only their own in terms of what to do, whether to respond or not, but dilemmas within families living in poverty or living in a politically unstable um, situation. So moral distress for those of you that don't know the literature, it came out of uh, nursing ethics, is roughly knowing the right thing to do, uh, but being unable to adequately respond to the situation for a variety of reasons. You don't have the resources, you're not the right person, or you don't have the power to respond. All of these things um, tend to be true for frontline researchers. They, they have a sense of what needs to be done, but what they, what they think should be done, uh, but they feel unable to respond uh, adequately. Uh, and just a few uh, quotes from um, some of the frontline research staff. In this case, um, the first instance was a public engagement officer. People share their stories and you wonder where I even begin to help them. What makes it unbearable is the inability to go an extra mile to help them. It makes you emotional. And one of the researchers said, so to them, sometimes you can feel that, you know what, I'm hitting the wall, but you just keep on trying and trying and trying. So that's what's most sad about the kids, helping them as a challenge, you see. That's why I think that for them, it requires patience and time. One of the remarkable things that came across was the perseverance and just the kind of chronic nature of 
the needs that frontline researchers face and that they're constantly kind of pulling themselves up the next day uh, after, you know, going to their office and crying and then trying again. Um, it just really uh, remarkable, dogged, um, repeated attempts to, to help. But one of the frustrations and one of our, um, one of our research team members, uh, Busi and Kozi called it the, the bridge to nowhere in, uh, in South Africa. Uh, there's a really widespread um, expectation that the best response uh, in research is to refer to services. So rather than trying to respond directly, the study should be set up to refer to existing services, partner in advance, find out who they are. And this is kind of the model for ancillary care, that is care that falls outside of the research remit or, or focus. Um, and yet in these health systems, which are fractured, struggling uh, now more than ever with COVID, um, this is often a bridge to nowhere. So you make a referral for gender-based violence or no gender-based violence counselors or services available. You make a referral for follow-up for cancer or for HIV and um, the, you know, the, there's one person in the district and they're inundated. And researchers were often uh, on their own time chasing referrals, following up, worrying about whether a young girl was referred, um, whether she was able to, to go to the appointment uh, for gender-based violence, all kinds of stories like that. Um, and so this bridge to nowhere is a really um, real and, um, I think uh, serious limitation to the referral to care approach to ancillary care. And there was a lot of distress, um, again, moral distress amongst the staff related to this, these challenges and limitations. Uh, as one of the public engagement officers said in, uh, at ARI, there's nothing as painful as wishing you could do something for, um, for participants or the community, but you cannot. Uh, we're human. And we heard that again and again, you know, we're human. This is the human thing to do. And yet they didn't feel um, that they had the resources to respond or the system in which they were trying to respond was so broken that they couldn't obtain services for the participants. The other really important thing that came across, um, as you see in the second quote, was the really strong community expectations that they respond. Um, so it was both a personal expectation that this is what I should do human to human, or this is what I should do as a member of this community because most frontline researchers are from and recruited from those communities because they speak the language, um, they know people, they can go out in the villages and, and conduct research. So there was this sense of solidarity, but there was also a community expectation that if you come and you gather um, information or blood samples or um, something that's valuable to you, you ought to give us something in return. And so this was the other, other frustration is that they weren't meeting um, community expectations in their own communities. In Mesot, um, and we have a, we'll have an entire paper coming out on this idea of Krenjai or Nar, which um, roughly translates to empathy or solidarity. So collective empathy uh, is a really complex, interesting, rich cultural norm. Um, and so uh, this doesn't quite do it justice, but roughly it was this idea of, of connection, of reciprocity between the frontline researchers, um, especially those who were Karen Burmese um, and the participants and families. Um, so as one of the frontline healthcare workers said, um, we also sympathize for them when they say we don't know what to do. We're helping each other. I am always here. They always come here and I always look after them. We have to help them. They also help us. That's what we tell them. So there was this constant awareness that um, the benefit had to, had to go both ways, that, that they were benefiting from gathering data and information on TB, uh, malaria, and they were also, uh, they needed to give something back. And they needed to give something back immediately. This idea of a long-term benefit, once the data comes out, once the malaria is eradicated, that's not what they're talking about. What they're talking about is that one-to-one -one response um, to the needs today. Um, and it was a very, very strong sense amongst the researchers. 
there were also a lot of worries, and this was in, in Mesot, about um, the ways in which research and the presence of research, despite bringing benefits of a, of a more sort of long-term nature, or even direct benefits of offering clinical care and services, might inadvertently exacerbate existing risks, in this case, political and economic risks. So this was one of the researchers worrying about um, traveling across the border and losing a day of wages. So you come in for research and it takes you all day to travel. Some travel for four hours in one direction, multiple modes of transportation, tractors, uh, ferry across the river, um, walking uh, great distances in, in you know, flooded roads. And um, they've lost you know, the opportunity to work in the field that day. Um, they may have to bring their kids with them because they don't have childcare. And at the border, they may be at risk of being caught by the police if they don't have papers. So um, we heard this from a lot of the researchers and who were really worried about the ways in which research, despite being beneficial, might exacerbate some of these uh, other risks. So researchers had a lot of different ways of responding in the moment, um, on the day. Uh, they often gave cash for, for meals. Um, they gave rides to hospital. Um, they made phone calls for people. They tried their best to connect them to care. There also is more, each of these institutions, um, and I should emphasize all of them have uh, robust ethics programs. Uh, they all have, they've been in these places for two and three decades. Uh, they're very well connected to the communities and to uh, the local governments and, and district governments. Um, so they did have, you know, plans for assistance. Some had small cash funds that had been um, pooled by donations from, um, uh, from staff. They had transportation. They often used staff vehicles um, somewhat outside the rules to help families get to an appointment or get home. Um, not be caught on one side of, of the river. You know, some staff would house people who were caught by the floods and needed to find a place to stay on the Thai side of the border. So there were lots and lots of stories of ways in which there was both immediate assistance and more sort of systemic attempts at the local institutional level, the research institute to try to um, offer or address some of these needs. As uh, one researcher in Kenya said, I've helped out many times. Sometimes you feel, uh, what will it harm if I give this mother a thousand shillings, a thousand bob? What harm will it have? And it's not because I'm so philanthropic, but the feeling that I'm leaving you without any food to eat, knowing you told me that you have nothing to eat. Sometimes it's human. You just see yourself. You're going to give it. Kimri doesn't allow me to give out money, so I haven't given you this money as Kimri staff. It's like an offering, like the way you give out offerings in a mosque. That's how I'm giving you. So it clearly gets in her head that it's not from Kimri, but just a blessing. I don't have to lie. I give the mom some money. And we saw this um, at all of the sites where there were rules against giving cash or there were rules against giving aid, not rules against doing it you know, giving it as an institution, or, uh, but rather as an individual. And there are um, lots of examples of people sort of skirting this by saying to the participants, this is not coming from Kimri, or this is not coming from Ari, the, the research institute, it's coming from me, Kenyan to Kenyan, or South African to South African, I'm giving you this bit, bit of money. The other, the other really heartbreaking um, stories that we heard from researchers were the, the ways in which on a daily basis almost they would witness um, deadly dilemmas within families. Um, in this case, uh, from one of our researchers, um, scholars, Akayo, um, I'm going to read this out because it, it was really quite powerful. Three mothers talked movingly about the harsh reality of having to choose between earning money to feed all of their children and having to care for the sick child. And this was the child who was in the research study. One mother described a vicious cycle post-discharge. In essence, she could not return to her job because of the child's health needs and was then unable to afford the transport costs for the occupational therapy recommended for her child. In this case, the main challenge for the mother was 
uh, with feeding and caring for this child was not so much the cost or access to food or even access to social support, but he was very poor feeder, something that our interview team also observed on visits to the home. Her frustration with being unable to feed her child adequately contributed to her feeling uh, feelings of helplessness with her disappointment and irritation impacting negatively on her persistence in feeding her child. Uh, and so there were lots of, um, of stories within households and within families of these really difficult trade-offs of, of um, um, trying to feed one child and knowingly not being able to feed the other or, or enrolling one child in a study and appealing to the researchers, could you please enroll my other two children? Um, because of the benefits of, of the research. So this is just a, how it was sort of a, a whirlwind and, and snapshot of, of some of the accounts that uh, we learned about through the eyes of, of frontline researchers and um, research staff who were directly engaged in, in either research or public engagement around research in the community. And now I want to step back from that a bit and offer some reflections on what this means for how we think about our ethical obligations in, in research. And I'm hoping this will carry over uh, to our discussion. So as I mentioned, I think a lot of this bears on how we think about ancillary care or duty of care within the research context. There's a rich literature on this and really important um, models of, of how to think about our obligations within research. And, and what we found in the REACH study was that despite these models, there are a number of really serious limitations. Um, one of which being um, the disconnect between uh, the resources available in any given study or research institute and the ones that we were partnered with are very, very well resourced research institutes and are probably not representative. And, and even so, um, there was often just um, a feeling that um, the needs were um, well beyond um, what could be offered, except for a pittance uh, within, within any given research study. And yet this deeply felt duty to respond, this deeply felt duty on the part of researchers to do something. Um, and secondly, there was this um, bridge to nowhere dilemma that uh, that the needs were vast and the referral to care model, which is what we currently rely on, um, was pretty much meaningless when when um, research is happening in the health system and social system that is fragile or, or fractured. And this resulted in, as I've described, really chronic moral distress of feeling that they, they had an obligation, they knew what the right thing to do was, but they didn't feel that they could respond adequately. So the inner circle here is kind of our, our um, the narrow view of what um, researchers owe to participants. And, and we have moved beyond that in, in most research ethics, um, but this was the starting point and, and that is providing essential care for participants providing them compensation and reimbursement for their costs and participating in research, and certainly attending uh, to any harms that result from, from research side effects, for example. And we have moved beyond this to recognize that insofar as possible, a research team should also offer some other benefits, especially uh, for clinical trials, uh, whether that's uh, healthcare, um, uh, basic diagnostic tests, other things that are linked to the research at hand, um, and where the presence of a research team can perhaps bring up the standard of care uh, around a particular issue, whether it's childbirth, malaria treatment, et cetera. Um, but that's, that's not always possible. We don't always have the resources to, to go to the second level. And then the, the wider level is, is a much broader view. And I think there've been calls to think seriously about what would it mean for research institutions to take a much wider view of responsibility to communities where research happens um, and to address these more sort of systemic institutional issues. And that's the question I think our data raises. And so the question obviously is what's, what's reasonable to ask of, of research uh, institutions and, and individual researchers. I think our data show that it's, it's quite unreasonable um, to, to continue in the way that we do, um, 
realizing the enormous burden that falls on the shoulders primarily of uh, frontline researchers who often live a precarious existence moving from one contract to another, hoping that uh, they'll find the next, you know, next study will come along in time for them to keep their work going and feed their family. Um, and they're the ones that are largely responding to immediate needs. Um, so there's a lack of still, I think, despite some centers taking this quite seriously, there still is a lack of attention to a more systemic approach to these kinds of dilemmas and needs in global health research. Um, so I do want to point out that work is being done on this, and there are a number of important um, um, efforts to try to think about how can, especially these, these institutes that are have a very long-term presence in, in low-resource uh, settings or countries, um, how they can partner with uh, local NGOs, governments, to try to provide um, some of these more um, institutional or social services, or at least contribute um, to, to those or to strengthening those institutions. But again, this is not the dominant uh, approach and it's um, we still haven't sorted out how to fund uh, fund this model. So again, coming back around to the implications of of our data, I think there is this critical moral disconnect uh, between recognizing the social value of research from above. So going back to the global burden of disease, recognizing that there's an important role for research in providing benefit and in informing. Um, even humanitarian and development interventions, and yet a disconnect with felt obligation on the ground, the need for an immediate response, um, the fact that that response is probably not going to be sustainable uh, from the population or institutional level. Uh, it's a really, really hard problem. I don't have the answer to this uh, at this stage. I'm raising this as, a, I think, a deep tension in how we think about our obligations in global health. And so these sources of moral distress close in, so the, the view from, from below, uh, the, the strong sense of empathy, the sense of duty, the sense of connectedness to fellow community members and neighbors um, is really powerful and I don't think should be ignored. And yet in research ethics, there's not a lot of attention to the moral emotions and that's something that was so pronounced in, in what we found in talking to researchers over time and getting to know how they, how they do their work and how they feel about their connections to participants and families and communities. And across the board, uh, we saw an enormous amount of uh, moral distress and it came from these three sources, the, the awareness. So they were aware that there was a social value to research and that it was a longer term vision, that it may be downstream, that it was at the population level. Um, that was, you know, they very much appreciated yet that, and yet it, it, there was a frustration that it didn't address current suffering and that they didn't have the means to address current suffering. And then there was also um, a distress from, from the awareness that intervening, if they do intervene, even in a small way, they might impact the accuracy of the research results. So a lot of the researchers were very savvy about, look, if I do this, this is an observational study, I have now undermined the data. Um, and there was an appreciation that that judgment call on a case-by-case -case basis is a really fraught one. And that every time they make a decision to intervene with a family or a participant, they may be affecting the data and thereby affecting the social value of the researchers quite an awareness of, of that challenge. And last, there was distress due to roles. So as I've mentioned twice now, that um, oftentimes the frontline researchers lack the power to affect immediate change. They, they, they act and they do their best, but um, they felt that they didn't, they weren't necessarily the right person to, um, to affect a, a really lasting change or to address what needed to be addressed by the government, for example. So there was enormous distress around roles of, of not feeling as though they were in, they had the power to do what they thought was, was necessary and, and needed. And they were witnessing this cycle of unnecessary, what they thought was unnecessary suffering. And they felt that they didn't um, have the right tools. And clearly there should be better solutions. They weren't sure what they were, um, but this wasn't it. Research was not it. 
Um, so I think that this questioning of the social value of research um, by researchers on the front line is something that we need to, to pay attention to and, and think about the, um, the knowledge that they have and the awareness that they have of, of, these, of these tensions. Um, this researcher uh, from, from Khalifi said, at the end, uh, you leave the participant and she tells you, we haven't eaten anything since yesterday up till now. And you're like, okay, mother, I'm leaving. And you switch on your land cruiser and leave. But you feel like, why was I asking these questions? Yet I could not chip in, even if it's saving the situation today and tomorrow. Um, and I, I, th I think that this awareness that researchers are sharing with us and saying, look, there's something wrong with this picture. Um, we've got to do better in, in how we respond to these urgent and immediate and very human needs. So the challenge that I want to, to leave you with um, and hopefully pursue in, in, in discussion uh, is this question. Should research contribute to addressing structural injustice as I set out at the very beginning? And if so, how can it do so effectively? And this was a paper from 2000 um, from Sally Benatar and Peter Singer uh, arguing that we need to see a shift in global health research uh, towards more attention to these deeper global inequities that chasing after and addressing um, the um, diseases of poverty while uh, critical and important needs to go hand in hand with addressing some of the structural drivers of disease. Otherwise, we'll have this kind of never ending cycle of, of um, uh, research without tackling these um, more sort of tackling these systemic uh, drivers of disease and they're therefore not really generating sustainable lasting solutions to health. This has been um, echoed in, in the Lancet um, that we need a radical shift from this sort of biomedical view of global health uh, and, and more attention to uh, social, behavioral, and environmental determinants of health. So the calls are out there. Um, and so this is the first way in which we might address structural drivers of disease and diseases of poverty. Um, and that is to rethink how we do priority setting and rethink um, the partnerships that um, Clinton and Sridhar um, um, highlighted in, in their book and their critique of global health governance. And um, think about, you know, is there a way to, within a malaria program, malaria eradication program and research program, is there a way to also include funding um, that is allocated toward these sort of institutional improvements within the health systems? I think it goes back to the door of, of donors. Um, and so those are, you know, these are these would require really sort of systemic changes to, to how we do global health uh, research funding. The second is in capacity building and training. And this is already something that a lot of these programs do. Um, and it's incredibly valuable. And I didn't want to, to skip over um, this contribution. The presence of these programs are raising the level of uh, the standard of care, the clinical standard of care. This is Dr. Rose McGrady, who is the lead on, on two of our partner studies um, as a researcher in obstetrics in MESOT. Um, and she regularly offers training programs um, on obstetrics and, and basic skills in childbirth um, to the local midwives and, and staff in the community. Um, this is true in, at RE and in Kimmery and Khalifi as well. And this is something that um, can certainly help shift some of the structural drivers of disease that if you're raising the level of care, raising the skill level, um, that's certainly an important contribution, but it's not always done systematically. And, and that's something I think we need to look at. Third is community activism and government partnerships. And again, all three of these programs um, have community engagement programs. Um, a lot of them are very active in responding to community needs that fall outside of research. But again, the model does still tend to be um, individual led efforts. So um, researchers often describe using their own time to um, address in this case, they witnessed environmental exposure to pesticides. And one of the re researchers has gotten quite active in trying to raise awareness around exposure to 
um, to deadly pesticides in, uh, along the border. So um, just to showcase uh, one of the sites, um, um, SMRU, they have tried um, to take these more structural challenges and, and the corresponding obligations seriously. Um, and they're an interesting model to look at. So they've been really active in um, developing a migrant um, health insurance scheme, um, which is um, offering and filling an important gap between both the governments of Myanmar and the government of Thailand in migrant health um, services. I've mentioned training um, and I've mentioned activism, but um, a lot of these institutions are, I think, offer important models for how we might leverage the presence of long-term long research programs um, and start to tackle uh, some of these more systemic needs in, in these regions. So just to end with a critique of this uh, and, and a challenge for us to think about, um, people have argued that research isn't designed, isn't designed to do this sort of allocative work which should be done by governments and institutions. It's meant to be investigative, it's meant to generate you know, generalizable knowledge and solve health problems in that way. And this is stretching uh, what I'm proposing would really stretch beyond the ability of research institutions um, and be an inappropriate use of those resources. And this is something that we should push governments and public health institutions to do. Uh, and I think that's a really important critique. Um, but I do think that the exception may be in these contexts, low resource governments and health systems, um, having a long-term presence there, I think brings with it a certain responsibility and offers opportunities. So as I've shown the frontline researchers in particular have an enormous amount of really valuable knowledge about what people need, uh, what the challenges are in fine-grained you know, context. And I think we uh, don't always value that knowledge. And um, so I think that potentially there should be an exception to, to um, some of these limitations when we think about uh, research institutes operating in, in extremely low resource uh, settings. So I'll, I'll end there and, and uh, uh, hopefully I've raised enough, um, made enough controversial points either in the data or um, some of my more suggestive comments. Uh, to generate um, some controversy and some questions. Uh, again, this is, we're now just stepping back from, from the data and starting to reflect on the implications. Uh, so I welcome any thoughts, uh, criticisms, worries um, that you might have. Thanks very much.